We took it all. We brought them to our land. An endless night. Ember hot and icy cold. The rage of the earth. We made this curse. Carved it in the blood on our backs. We did not see. We could not, but she did. And in the end... What will I become? Senwa Saga. Hellblade 2. Play it now with Game Pass. What is going on, Diesel Nation? We're excited to have you guys with us today on the Diesel Podcast. If you're watching this on YouTube and aren't subscribed, make sure to click the subscribe button, turn on notifications, like, comment, let us know what you think about the episode. Let us know if there's a particular guest or topic that you want covered. We're always checking comments on YouTube. Love to hear from you guys and then get those topics or guests on the future episodes. Today, I'm going to be chatting with Stuart Cables. You've heard from him before on the podcast. He's a lawyer that works on EPA cases. And I wanted to ask him if 2023, if the enforcement that the EPA is doing is going to be increasing, if it's going to stay the same, if there's any chance that it might you know, be lessened a little bit. Um, in December, the EPA had released a memo that talked about their enforcement initiatives that are going to be coming out this year and curious what he's hearing, seeing out there. also want to ask him some questions, maybe um, you know, some common things that his clients ask him pertaining to settlements, fines. When do these cases go from civil to criminal? Do they ever go from civil um, or start out that way and then transition to a criminal um, proceeding. What's what's the deciding factor that the EPA has in regards to that? And then I'm going to ask him some of your questions. There's a ton of them that have come in on our Discord, Instagram, on YouTube um, about what the EPA can do, what it can't do, uh, considerations um, you know pertaining to the proceedings tons of different stuff. So I'm going to ask him all those questions. Before we get to it, though, I want to remind you guys, our friends over at Kershaw Knives have a 20% off site-wide discount code for you. Use code 20diesel at kershaw.kaiusa.com. It's a great way to save some money on some cool gear. You guys have shown me some uh, some pictures of some cool stuff you guys have gotten. So if you're in the market for it, it's a great way to be able to save some money. It's something they offer just for you guys. And no matter what your budget is, they've got something for you. So they've got a really diverse product line with a ton of different options for opening mechanisms, blade steels, handle materials, blade lengths. Definitely make sure and head on over and check it out if you're in the market. All right, let's get to today's podcast with Stuart and chatting with him about the EPA enforcement, if it's increasing this year, if it's going to get worse, and what he's hearing on his side. Stuart, it's always a pleasure to chat with you. You're my go-to for emissions questions, EPA questions, and Gosh, our last episode, it's our most played ever on YouTube, which is like, I think about 170,000 plays. And I know there's a lot to cover back then, and there's even more to cover you know, here in 2023. So I appreciate your time today sitting down with me, chatting, answering some questions I have that our listeners have, and learning more about what's going on with emissions enforcement and kind of that whole arena. Yeah, uh, Patrick, I'm happy to be here. I always uh, enjoy doing your podcast and educating your listeners about what the EPA is doing and kind of what they can expect with any modifications or any treatment they want to do to their vehicle. And, uh, you know, I'm happy to help. So just uh, ready for your questions when you got them and we can sort of go from there. Yeah, I went through the uh, the comments on YouTube and our Discord and some other places from the last episode. And one of the things I wanted to mention kind of at the start is I think with that last episode, some people who found the video thought maybe we were sharing our opinions or my opinion and I was going to comment on what I thought of emissions or the EPA or that you were. But really that wasn't the focus. It, it was more so to focus on the facts, which is really tough to find as either a diesel enthusiast or someone who works in the industry 
or someone who's just interested in government and agencies and the interaction with people and business. And so I really wanted to mention that and just kind of, you know, give that as a heads up to people that are listening. You know, I'm not going to be voicing what I think of emissions or, or you are. It's really focusing on the facts, which it's so tough to find nowadays pertaining to something that is really striking at people's passions and their businesses and their hobbies is finding what is the factual information. So I think I think that'll you know, really be a good basis for us to, to chat today um, and discuss this topic. But one of the things I'd like to start with is your background working on this. And I think it's incredible to be able to have you as a guest because this is something you spend a lot of time on and, and work with companies and individuals in these proceedings. And wanted to have you chat a little bit with me about you know, your experience. How many, how many of these cases do you, you know, typically handle in a year or overall? Or, or what's your experience working with the EPA and, and businesses? Yeah. Uh, so um, I've had a, uh, probably countless numbers of these cases of varying different levels. So uh, oh, represent uh, currently probably about 30 or 40 of the diesel shops around the country that's all the way from manufacturers to WDs to uh, install shops. And then, you know, there's some end users who, you know, write me emails or give me a call. I wouldn't necessarily say that I represent them, but I help them out and just to give them a good idea of what it is that they can expect with regard to the EPA. Um, I've, I've probably from start to finish had maybe about a hundred cases with the EPA. And those are all different levels. I've had some, you know, really big cases with uh, companies that uh, lots of different um, uh, potential violations or violations of the Clean Air Act and manufacture, you know, tens of thousands of parts, hundreds of thousands of parts. I've also had, you know, very tiny little cases with small mom and pop type companies who have you know, 19 violations, 32 violations. Um, I think that it really runs the gamut of, uh, you know, what the EPA's uh, types of enforcement are and breadth of enforcement is. And so, you know, they come in all different shapes and sizes, but um, I've been doing this for about 15 years. And uh, obviously, you and I know each other because you used to work at ATS Diesel, which is kind of the company that I started representing back in 2008. Uh, so, or actually, it was 2007. So that's been, you know, 16 years by now that I've been in the diesel world, and I've been probably doing the EPA cases and the CARB cases all the way since 2011, 2012. So it's been about um, 10 or 11 years in the industry doing the EPA stuff for me and, you know, 15 or 16 years in the industry representing companies um, around the country. And that, that experience is what's so helpful to ask these questions and have these discussions. And I think the main topic or the main thing I want to learn from this is in 2023, is the EPA CARB, is there still that focus on deleted trucks or deleted parts? But our audience had so many questions, and I think it'll help to kind of recap that last episode and lead into this one. And for anyone that missed the last one, Stuart and I discussed the Supreme Court ruling 
that pertain to the EPA. It wasn't specific to diesel trucks, but there were questions about, you know, will it apply towards the automotive market? Um, what are some considerations? And there were a couple questions I wanted to ask you that a lot of people had. One of them was, in essence, I'm paraphrasing it, but it said, or they asked, if an agency can't make law, how can they enforce it? Or why should I even care what the EPA or any other agency says if the Supreme Court ruled this. And so I wanted to ask you for the facts and in, in your, um, you know, your experience with this. Why should somebody care about it if they said an agency can't make law um, or enforce it or did they? Yeah. Um, so that's a great question. And that is a complex question. And that is a question that um, when you're in law school um, is a big topic of conversation because you have this kind of hierarchy of laws in the U.S. and it starts, of course, with the Constitution and then it goes down to federal statutes like the Clean Air Act, the Clean Water Act, or, you know, other statutes that apply to everything that we do. And then you have, uh, you know, another layer of, of cases where people sue to enforce those statutes or people sue for other, you know, civil actions under those statutes, or maybe a, a law enforcement agency files a, um, you know, uh, either a lawsuit or they indict someone and the criminal portion of those statutes is applied. And then in addition to the, you know, sort of the federal hierarchy, you also have the state hierarchy and each state has got its own constitution and each state has its own statutes which would apply to again everything we do and the interplay between all those laws is sort of what what makes up our judicial system and you know uh, generates all these different these different disputes and complaints and uh enforcement efforts and everything that we see today so the authority to create a agency is vested in the executive branch of the government of the government. The EPA um, is, you know, the example that we're talking about uh, here, but that applies to all agencies, uh, the Food and Drug Administration, the um, you know, the Center for Disease Control, like all of these different agencies are vested in the executive branch of the government. And the president of the U.S. has the authority to appoint uh, uh, head of these agencies, either an administrator or a director to, you know, run the agencies. And then they hire, you know, hundreds of thousands of people underneath. And the agencies have the authority to enforce federal statutes. So they don't make the laws, but they have been vested with the authority to enforce the laws, or they have been invested with the authority to interpret the laws and create rules and guidance that allows for them to be um, administered in an effective way. Okay. And this is where it gets complicated because you have two separate directions, two separate sort of branches of 
laws and law enforcement starting at that point. You have an administrative branch, and then you have sort of a federal judicial branch. And both of those branches or both of those sort of threads of of administration and of enforcement of the law are equally uh, applicable and legal, but they are very different, okay? So uh, it's very hard to explain, even for an attorney who's got experience and what sort of the difference between an administrative law is and an actual federal statute. So because the executive branch has created a uh, vested the authority to enforce its laws with an agency, you have to, the that agency has got to play by the rules. And when it is being determined whether or not that agency is playing by the rules, there is a separate set of rules that govern whether or not that agency is playing by the rules. And that's the administrative portion of the law. So the US EPA does not have the authority to make laws, but it does have the, the authority through the president and the president's office to interpret and enforce laws. And I'll give you an example. The EPA uh, is in this, in our industry, generally speaking, interpreting and enforcing the provisions that are contained in the Clean Air Act. The EPA has lots of authority that goes beyond the Clean Air Act, like the Clean Water Act and, you know, all the different federal statutes that protect the environment or protect the you know, the air we breathe and the water we drink and make sure it's clean and all that stuff. I know a lot of listeners have probably seen what's going on in Ohio, right? Um, this train ran off the tracks and it exploded and a bunch of toxins went everywhere and the stuff that went everywhere is extremely dangerous. And the EPA's job is to go in there and, you know, supervise and clean it up to the best of their ability, even though they didn't really cause the train from to, you know, go off the tracks and explode. So the EPA is in charge of everything that has to do with the environment and the air we breathe and the water that we drink and all that stuff. So in our particular circumstance, the EPA is interpreting and enforcing the Clean Air Act. And the Clean Air Act has a million different provisions. It is a massive, massive piece of legislation thousands and thousands of pages long. And the interpretation of all the provisions in the Clean Air Act is really variable because nobody could have predicted what was going to happen in, I guess it's been 60 years now since the Clean Air Act was created, in order to actually follow those rules. So what the EPA does is, as an agency, they create guidelines, and they create guidance in order to interpret and administ administrate the laws that are contained in the Clean Air Act or whatever other federal statute there is. And because they are interpreting those laws and they're creating guidance to apply the law the way that they see fit, that 
is the authority that's been vested to it by the U.S., by the executive branch, by the president. And there's a wide leeway for them to be able to interpret and administer and enforce the Clean Air Act in our case. But if they don't do it right, or they're not reasonable in the way that they administer the Clean Air Act, or enforce the Clean Air Act, or interpret the Clean Air Act, or they're doing so in an arbitrary and capricious manner, then we as US citizens or other governmental agencies or companies or states, which sue the EPA all the time, we have the right to question how they're doing it. And the way that we question how they're doing it is we can usually either file a lawsuit or we can proceed forward in this administrative court, this administrative, uh, um, it's called an adjudication in front of an administrative law judge or an ALJ, okay? So the first thing that you have to do, if you have a problem with the way that the EPA has interpreted the Clean Air Act or any other law, or any other federal agency has interpreted any other law. The first thing that you have to do is you have to look at what they did and you have to determine whether or not what they did was reasonable and whether or not it wasn't arbitrary and capricious or whether or not there wasn't any other problem with it. If you think that there was a problem with what the EPA did or the way that they're interpreting the Clean Air Act, then you can sue them in federal court and your lawsuit against them is reviewed by a judge and you go through the entire lawsuit process. And the lawsuit, the federal judge can then say, EPA did its job. It reasonably interpreted the rules that and the law that is provided for in the Clean Air Act. And therefore, you do not have the ability to sue it or to get injunctive relief, which means stop what the EPA is doing because the EPA reasonably applied the rules. If they determine that the EPA did not reasonably apply the rules, then that judge has the ability to go to the EPA and say, hey, you didn't do this right. EPA is not permitted to do what it did, whatever it was, interpret a rule or a law in a certain way. And you are not allowed to do that. And EPA, you're wrong. You have to go back and you have to change what you did. So agencies do not have the ability to create laws. They do not have the ability to legislate. That's the job of Congress, the House of Representatives and the Senate. They do not have the ability to make certain laws. What they do have the ability to do in an authority that's vested in them to them by the president is they have the ability to interpret and administrate the laws that the legislators have made. And there's this supervision or this guidance out there with all the citizens of the US and all the companies in the US and all the states in the US where all of these different parties can go to any agency 
of the federal government and they can say, hey, you didn't interpret this, this law correctly or you didn't enforce this law correctly. Therefore, we're going to sue you or we're going to try to prevent you from enforcing the law in this certain way because if you are allowed to do what you're doing, that's going to be a violation of the federal statute or of the Constitution. So if I understand it correctly pertaining to last summer and the ruling, is it, it's not something that's just a, um, like a universal ruling that says any agency has no power to do anything. It was very specific to what would, I, I assume would be a lawsuit that said, hey, you overreached, and then the Supreme Court agreed, in this case, you can't do it. But it's not completely removing the authority of the executive branch creating these agencies to enforce some sort of federal law or statute. That's exactly right. Okay. They, the citizens of the U.S. and the states and other companies that are in the U.S., which are considered individuals by law, have the ability to double check the work of the agencies and to say that if you didn't do something correctly, we're going to hold you to account. And, you know, there's, there's, sorry to interrupt, Patrick, there's really, really good lawyers at the EPA who are, are actually with what's called the Office of the General Counsel, which is a separate agency for lawyers that represents the separate agencies of the U.S. government. And those lawyers' primary job is to make sure that the actions of their clients, which in this case would be the EPA, are reasonable and not arbitrary and capricious, and they comport with the statute so that the agencies don't get overturned in their guidance or their rulings or their determinations or whatever actions they're taking. Okay. I didn't know that. But I, I, that yeah. makes sense to try to avoid time and money and effort being spent into something if you can avoid it ahead of time. But yeah. the, the part of that uh, listener's question that, uh, really kind of piqued my interest was about why should I care? And I wanted to ask you about the enforcement or, you know, there's stories and I've had some of the, some guests on before that have, you know, they've had fines, they've had, um, you know, felonies, different things. So it's not just necessarily you know, pay X amount or don't do this again. Where does it change in that process from, you know, maybe say you get a letter and it says, don't do this anymore too. I owe six figures. I'm a felon. I've lost these rights. I have to, you know, I have uh, home. I'm not sure the exact term for it, but basically I have to stay at home and declare where you're going everywhere for six months or a year or something like that. In How does that detention? happen? Yeah. Um, okay. So that's a great question. And there's a lot of confusion out there about this. And part of the confusion is because people don't understand People aren't lawyers, so they don't really understand what the process is like. But also, a lot of the confusion has to do with the way that the EPA has decided to enforce certain laws, okay? So the Clean Air Act has a criminal component, and it has a civil component, which means that if you, in our instance, if you sell a defeat device, or a tuner or a straight pipe or something that's not legal to sell. The EPA has a choice and 
what they can decide to do is they can decide, I'm going to charge this guy with a crime. Or they can say, I am going to try to get money, a penalty out of whoever is doing this. They Right at the beginning, they can branch out in two different directions. They can go criminal or they can go civil. And the Clean Air Act permits them to make a choice on which direction they want to go. The EPA's stated position is that if you are an especially egregious violator or you are doing especially bad things, then typically they want to go the criminal route. They want to charge you with a crime, which also comes with it a penalty. Okay. Has that happened in practice? Not really. And that's probably the main source of confusion for your listeners, Patrick, is that there are some really, really egregious violators out there. Some really, really high volume, some extremely uh, public violators out there who were not charged with a crime. There are also some extremely low level dealers, people who are not manufacturers, people who do not have a public profile, and they have been charged with a crime. Yep. So it's not as though the EPA is really investigating the, the criminals and then charging them on a hierarchy. Like if you have 20,000 violations, you're going to be charged with a crime. If you have less than 100 violations, you're not going to be charged with a crime. They're not doing it that way, which leads to a ton of confusion in the industry and a ton of confusion with my clients because my clients are like, hey, I sold you know, 50 parts. How come I'm being investigated by the Department of Justice and so-and-so you know, massive corporation, <clears throat> excuse me, massive corporation has, uh, you know, sold 66,000 parts and they didn't get charged with a crime. So there's not really a cutoff or a delineation between who is and who isn't charged with a crime. And that's actually something that the EPA could be sued for is I'm not saying that the lawsuit would be legitimate, but the interpretation of their criminal versus civil enforcement isn't really consistent, which is one of the hallmark things that you have to be when you're a governmental agency in order to have your actions be taken seriously and survive these challenges, right? Yeah. So that is a bit of an aside, but back to your question, the, the EPA or your listeners question, I should say, the EPA can go the civil route or the, it can go the criminal route at the very beginning. Okay. If it goes the criminal route, the EPA has a group of criminal investigators that go around and they execute warrants and they conduct investigations and they contact people who have bought and sold these parts and they put together a big pile of information that they get from various different places. And then ultimately they decide if they want to indict or charge with a, crim a crime or convene a grand jury to charge um, these parties with a crime. 
And the way that they have to do that is the EPA's criminal investigators take this big packet of information and then they go to the Department of Justice and they make a referral. And then the Department of Justice, which is in this instance, a federal prosecutor, the U.S. Attorney's Office, the U.S. Attorney's Office will take this packet of information and they will say, okay, I think that there's enough to indict for a crime here. We have enough evidence on, you know, the sale of an illegal part under the Clean Air Act or a conspiracy, which has been a common charge in the industry, uh, which is where you agree with another party that the two of you together are going to sell these parts and you're going to make money or, you know, any variety of a lot of other types of crimes. The U.S. attorney is the prosecutor, and they're the ones who have to decide whether or not the information that they've been provided on a certain company or a certain individual is worthy of being charged with a crime. And here's the thing. Those U.S. attorneys are really operating in a vacuum. And there's a U.S. attorney's office in each of the 50 states and it's a federal office that is operating in each individual state. And these U.S. attorneys and the Department of Justice, they don't know what so-and-so is doing in Indiana or so-and-so is doing in Idaho or so-and-so is doing in Florida. The only thing that they know is that they got a packet of information on X individual or X company and did that company or did that individual commit a crime or a series of crimes? And if so, are they going to proceed forward with an indictment so they can charge that person with a crime, arrest them, or you know, otherwise detain them and then go to court and try to convict them in front of a jury? Those U.S. attorneys, they don't know hardly anything about our industry. They really don't. They know that defeats are illegal. They know that this is a big deal to the EPA. They know this is a big deal to the Department of Justice, but they don't know anything about the number of violators in each state, in each county who are doing anything. The only thing they know is that packet of information that they have in front of them. So that's kind of the criminal side. And that's the reason for the inconsistency and the confusion with your listeners is at the beginning, when you go in this branch, criminal or civil, civil or criminal, it is completely at the discretion of the EPA what direction they want to go. And it's completely at the discretion in the criminal side of the U.S. Attorney's Office whether or not that person should be charged with a crime or indicted and then taken to court, okay? On the civil side, if you choose the civil branch, the EPA chooses the civil branch, there's a whole different process. And that process starts usually with a subpoena or a request for information where they demand that that uh, company or the individual give them everything that they have on every single part that they've had and all of their financial data and all the emails and all the messages and blah, blah, blah. And then, you know, you hire a lawyer and, you know, you work with the EPA to submit the information and see if it, they think that it's sufficient. But 
at the end of the day, once the EPA has the information that you provide, the choice that they're making at that time isn't really whether we're going to have a criminal or a civil case. They've pretty much chosen it's going to be a civil case. In rare occurrences, they can branch off and they can go to a criminal if what the person's done is really bad. But usually when you get to the end of the road of the review of the information that you've provided, the EPA is trying to negotiate a penalty, which is the amount of money that you pay. They're trying to get you to sign a contract with the U.S. government that says, hey, I know that what I did was wrong. I'm not going to do it again. And then they kind of go on their way. And they say, hey, so-and-so over there in Texas uh, signed an agreement and said that they weren't going to do this again. And if they do it again, they are going to be what's called a repeat offender or there's going to be aggravated factors. And then they might decide that they're going to go the criminal route. So the real goal in the civil side is not to get these guys to pay a penalty. The real goal is to get these guys to sign that contract with the U.S. government where they acknowledge that what they did was wrong and they acknowledge that they're not going to do it again so that in the future, if they do do it again, the U.S. government can hold up a piece of paper and they can say, hey, we've got this contract. You said you were, you were, you were doing was wrong. Okay. If you don't settle with the EPA, if you don't settle with the US government and sign that contract, or you have a dispute about whether or not what you were selling was legal, then they can sue you. And that's where it gets really complicated because we took it all, we brought them to our land. An endless night. Ember hot and icy cold. The rage of the earth. We made this curse. Carved it in the blood on our backs. We did not see. We could not, but she did. And in the end, what will I become? Senwa Saga. Hellblade 2. Play it now with Game Pass. When they sue you, they can choose to sue you in two different ways. They can choose to sue you in federal court in front of a federal district court judge and say that you violated the Clean Air Act, or they can sue you all the way back to the beginning of our podcast. They can sue you in an administrative court, and that is a federal administrative court that is managed and, and uh, operated by what's called an ALJ, an administrative law judge. And when they sue you there, there's a whole separate set of rules related to what they're trying to prove than there is over here in federal court. So if you get sued in administrative court, usually what happens is that the ALJ isn't trying to figure out whether or not what you did was right or wrong. They're usually just trying to figure out whether or not the EPA acted within its reasonable discretion and not in an arbitrary and capricious manner in the enforcement of the federal statute, the Clean Air Act, okay? If they sue you in federal court, it's different. They got a different standard of review. They've got a different burden of proof. They have to prove that the parts that you sold were illegal. They have to prove that the parts that you sold generate an economic benefit. And then 
ultimately it gets to a judge and a judge determines if you have violations, whether or not you pay a penalty and how much that penalty is. So it gets really complicated in these separate branches. And maybe I can give you a, like a flow chart or something that you can post on your website that your listeners can look to about what the process is. But you start out in the very beginning with the investigation and the EPA immediately decides civil or criminal, criminal or civil. If you're in criminal, you're all the way over here. You're kind of, you know, in a uh, criminal investigation where they can execute a warrant, they can come to your place of business, they can interview people, they can gather information, and then they get that info and they give it to a grand jury to decide whether or not you've done enough to commit a crime. If they choose civil, usually it ends around that time when you're negotiating a penalty and that penalty, whether or not you can pay it, whether or not it's reasonable. But if you don't settle, then there's this whole other branch where you can decide, the EPA decides whether or not you're getting sued in administrative court or federal court. So your listeners shouldn't be embarrassed or shameful that they're confused about what the EPA is doing because it is extremely confusing. And even I get confused about it. And I've been doing this for you know 10 to 15 years. So that's the reason why everybody doesn't really understand what the what the EPA is doing or what the difference is between the criminal and the civil enforcement because there's not necessarily a rhyme or reason to the way the EPA does what it does. Yeah, I think you had mentioned the confusion about why does um, this entity that does this volume get civil and this smaller place gets criminal because all these settlements are public and you can see them on the EPA website and so people have that information and I think it was in late December there was a memo or something that the EPA had released and that's where I wanted to really hone in on our chat today and ask you know in 2023 and beyond is there still this huge focus on defeat devices um, parts maybe individuals with who's installing them because I think the perception out there is we used to hear about civil penalties and these companies would pay a fine and say I'm not going to do this anymore and then we've started to hear more of these felony charges these other things losing businesses yeah. and it seems like that's become more common now so um, I wanted to ask you about that memo that they released or or what their agenda is yeah. moving forward and, and and what that looks like yeah so um so just something you just said, uh, somewhat unrelated, uh, but, but related to the overall scope. The EPA is not allowed to put a company out of business. They can't do it. If you get sued civilly and you can't pay a penalty, even if you can only afford to pay $200 or $400 under what's called ability to pay analysis, which I know you and I have talked about on your podcast, yeah, that's what the penalty is. Because the EPA is not allowed to impose a fine of any kind that actually puts a company out of business, period. So that's an important takeaway. That's on the civil side. What happens on the criminal side? I mean, if you go to jail for three years and your company goes out of business, you're kind of out of luck. But, you know, something to keep in mind when we're talking about whether a company has the ability to pay or they don't have the ability to pay. 
okay? Um, with regard to your to the memo that you brought up, this is something that you drew to my attention uh, that I think was shared by uh, several people in the industry on Facebook or maybe Instagram. Pretty sure that uh, Corey was one of them. And I wanted to go through this because I think that this memo is important to the um, the overall nature of enforcement. So I've shared my screen. Um, if the listeners are on a computer or on a phone, you should be able to see it. Uh, if not, this is an EPA memo of December 20th, 2022 that you could probably look up online. And I can also give it to you, Patrick, if you if you do share that stuff on your on your website. Um, this memo relates to um, the compliance initiatives, national initiatives to focus its enforcement and compliance resources on in the most serious environmental problems facing the United States. And what this memo does is it doesn't really do anything substantively for our industry. This is a, a administration-wide memo that pertains to all environmental enforcement actions and all environmental problems. And if your listeners will remember, maybe they don't, maybe they do, but you know, it gets kind of technical. In 2019, the Trump administration created a national compliance initiative that had six specific aspects, six specific areas related to the most serious environmental problems facing the US. And those six specific problems were the problems that the EPA was directed to spend its enforcement dollars on and directed to consider a highest priority for enforcement. And the reason that our industry was thrown into turmoil, especially related to the aftermarket parts, is because one of the six items in the National Compliance Initiative was stopping the sale and installation of aftermarket defeat devices on mobile, mobile sources trucks, ag equipment, tractors, balers, anything diesel, anything, even if it's not diesel, any aftermarket defeat device was considered a, a matter of the utmost environmental uh, importance to the EPA, and the administration was directed to enforce on those uh, violators. Okay. And starting in 2019, June of 2019, everything went upside down and there was enforcement before that, but it really ramped up at that time. Okay. This memo is a memo that is identifying the fact that we have these initiative, these initiatives to focus their enforcement and compliance resources on and letting the regional administrators who are the people who operate in the separate regions in the country, there's like, I wanna say 11 regions. I can't remember off the top of my head. The regional directors to say, hey, 
that national compliance initiative that we did in 2019, it's coming up for reconsideration. And in the fiscal year 24 to 27, there are going to be new national compliance initiatives. So fiscal year for the EPA, I believe, starts October 1st. It's in the fall. And what this memo means is that we have these six, these six compliance initiatives that have been a focus of the EPA for the last four years. Starting in September of, of uh, 23 or October of 23, we're going to have new compliance initiatives. Those compliance initiatives could be exactly the same as the ones that we've had over the course of the last four years because the EPA hasn't met its goals on these. They could be six completely different ones. They could be eight completely different ones. There could be three, two of which are the same, one of which is different. We don't know. So aftermarket diesel and gasoline defeat devices and for mobile sources could in this year, this 2023, the end of this year, stop being a focus of the United States EPA. Do I think it will continue to be a focus? Do I think it will continue to be listed as a compliance initiative? If I had to give you an opinion, <laughs> which I know that we're trying to stay away from those, but guess what? This is my podcast. I could do it. <laughs> if I had to give you a if I had to give you an opinion, I would say it would probably go on for one more cycle. I think the EPA has made a lot of progress in this area, but it's not all the way gone yet. I don't know that for sure. I don't have any reason to believe that I think, I don't have any reason to think that beyond just my perception of the industry, that's, that's it, my professional experience. But it is definitely possible that this would no longer be a compliance initiative, these aftermarket defeat devices. And the reason that that's important is not because all of a sudden, starting on October 1st of 2023, that everything's going to be legal to sell again, because that's not going to happen. The reason it's important is because you can see, um, the reason for the compliance initiatives is because the goal is to focus its enforcement and compliance resources on these problems. So right now, the EPA has got a boatload of resources that are used to focus on stopping aftermarket defeat devices. That's why everybody's getting an enforcement effort. That's why they have criminal investigators and civil investigators and tons and tons of lawyers trying to do this. It's because those are the resources that are available to the EPA and the EPA has been directed to use those resources for the purpose of stopping aftermarket defeats. That, the Clean Air Act is not gonna change at the end of this year in the fall, but guess what? 
the EPA could pull a ton of resources away from these compliance efforts and they could say, hey, we're not going to focus on you guys anymore. We're going to focus on somebody else. Does that make sense? It does. And I thought of a question. I don't know if this is opinion or if there's precedence for it, but could it also go the opposite way to that branch that you talked about in the beginning where they think of criminal or civil? It, has it happened before, I'd say, with the EPA where they say this isn't civil anymore, this is all criminal, this is what we're going to do? So could, they, could it be ramped up in the opposite direction or do they typically, with these uh, enforcement initiatives, kind of stay where they're at and this continue on for a certain amount of time and then change yeah, to something else? That's a great question. Um, so uh, it's not really opinion. Um, the compliance, uh, the compliance initiative does not discriminate or, or identify a criminal versus a civil. So if there's a compliance initiative, it will be both criminal and civil. If there's not a compliance initiative, it, there just won't be an initiative. It doesn't mean that enforcement won't happen. I want to be completely clear. Enforcement is going to continue to happen. It's just that the EPA may not devote as many resources to enforcement. The thing to know on this topic, which is not opinion, is criminal enforcement efforts cost a lot more than civil enforcement efforts. Civil enforcement efforts are relatively reasonable with regard to their total cost. Criminal enforcement efforts involve the U.S. Department of Justice. They involve the U.S. Attorney's Office. They involve law enforcement on a variety of different levels. And so they're just a lot more time consuming and a lot more expensive. And the other thing is, if you do get a charge, then the EPA is probably pretty confident that they can prove a case in court. And if the EPA is confident it can prove a case of court, it's probably willing to do it if it has to. So all of those factors make, in a civil court, if they don't think that they can prove a case, they can always just settle. You know, you're not talking about somebody's freedom that's at issue, right? And if you can't settle, then they can always just drop it. The U.S. attorney doesn't really have it, it can drop a criminal charge, but it's not going to. It's not. It's just not going to bring the charge in the first place. So the reason that that's important is because the, the compliance initiative won't discriminate or won't uh, identify whether it's going to be a criminal or a civil enforcement. It's definitely going to be a combination of both. And all of the cases that are going on right now are going to continue to go on. Those are not going to stop. Those are not going to, it's not like, you know, October 1st comes or, or whatever the date is, and they're going to be like, oh, well, no compliance initiative anymore. So you're off the hook. That's not going to happen. I want to be clear with your listeners, because I know some of them like to get their hopes up about what's happening in the industry, but it's just, it's really the criminal and civil are really going to slow down because the EPA is simply not going to have enough re resources, as many resources to devote to the type of enforcement that you've seen up until now. Gotcha. So we just got to kind of wait till the fall and then see what they do and then probably yeah. do another podcast on it. And I, I yeah, seen, for sure. <laughs> there's a, a couple questions that the well, listeners they, had they, asked. Uh, just a, so um the 
and compliance initiatives should come out in June. That's when they came out last time, June of 2019. I don't know if it's going to be June or May or July. I don't think that they have like a set date, but the okay. compliance initiatives are not going to come out at the beginning of the fiscal year. They're going to come out beforehand and then there's going to be, you know, a few months in between. So probably by the next time we know, we'll be in the summer. Gotcha. That makes sense. That, that definitely helps a lot to understand. And, and I was, I think a lot of what we've chatted about probably pertains to businesses and companies and, and diesel shops. But at the very beginning, you had mentioned kind of the hierarchy of law and it's starting with the constitution and then federal law and, and states. And I know whenever I watch videos on topics like this, I, I think we all kind of do. We have a tendency to think about ourselves and think, okay, what am I going to do? Or am I affected personally, even though I may, you know, I don't own a diesel shop or something like that. And a lot of people asked, well, what can I do with my truck? Can I sell my truck as it is? Can I buy a truck as it sits? Um, is somebody going to knock on my door? And I know this probably pertains more so to states, but a lot of people were asking about that. Does any of what we've talked about with EPA or enforcement or anything like that pertain to an individual in any one of the 50 states? Or is that more so up to the state itself and how it may or may not enforce emissions laws? Yeah. Yeah, so uh, you and I have talked about this on, I think, more than one podcast, but it's always bears repeating. And the reason that it bears repeating is because your listeners are individuals for the most part, and they're not companies that sell products or run businesses. So I'm always happy to talk about the impact on the individuals and the emissions type stuff. So it is 100 percent for sure in every 50 states no matter what illegal to pull the emissions equipment off your vehicle full stop it doesn't matter if you live in north dakota and they're like we don't care it doesn't matter if someone at an it doesn't matter if your state doesn't have emissions testing it doesn't matter if somebody at an emissions testing facility is giving you a you know wink wink good deal it is 100% illegal to remove emissions equipment off of any vehicle that travels on the roads, period. Now, a couple things, a couple caveats to that statement. Number one is the EPA has made it clear in its Borla, well, the EPA has made it clear, but it's reiterated in the Borla exhaust uh, case that you and I talked about last time that the EPA's goal is not to enforce the Clean Air Act on end users and vehicle owners. So is the EPA going to come and knock on your door if you've got a deleted truck? Probably not. Definitely not. You're not going to get investigated for that. But there's other consequences to having a deleted truck, no matter what state you live in. And the consequences related to having a deleted truck are much more financial than they are legal, okay? So if you've got a deleted truck and you've got a relationship with an emissions guy or you don't have emissions in your state, you go to your emissions place and all of a sudden he's been replaced by some, you know, young liberal guy who is, you know, hyper protective of the environment. And he says, there's no more deal for you 
you know, this, this vehicle is not compliant. That guy's not going to report you to the EPA and he's not going to report you to the state, probably unless you're in California, but even then, you know, it's unlikely. What he's going to do is he's going to fail your vehicle for emissions and he's going to say, you can come back when you get a new one or when you, when you put it back to stock. Well, how many of these people, how many of your listeners do you think are interested in putting their vehicle back to stock, Patrick? Not really? many. Not many. Not many. <laughs> and the EPA knows that too. So, you know, that's probably not going to happen, especially on the financial side, but you're going to be driving around with a tag that's not current, or you're going to have to go and get a tag somewhere that you don't live, which is not legal, or you are going to have to take a tag off of a license plate that you find at the local Walmart parking lot, which is definitely not legal. Bottom line is you're not going to be able to register the vehicle. So that's one consequence. The other consequence is, and you and I have talked about this before, if you have a deleted truck, the mechanics are not allowed to work on it, period. If you're a mechanic, you cannot work on a deleted truck. You can do an oil change. You can do windshield wiper fluid. You can put a lift on it. You can put new tires on it. It's about it. Is that and real quick? I know I, that that just brought up a, a question. Is that something that the EPA or during your experience in these cases, they've been really picky about with shops? Is as I've heard different things like, you know, doing an oil change or tires are fine, but if you have to take off this um, EGR delete to replace the manifold and then you're reinstalling it, that's a big no-no. Like, is that something that, that really happens? A hundred percent. The EPA has a huge focus on repair shops and a huge focus on whether repair shops are working on deleted trucks, because that is a major choke point to get the the deletes off the trucks is if you stop people from repairing them, yeah. then what are they going to do? Some people can do it on their own, but then there's another problem. The other problem is what about getting the parts? You have to get, you have to not only get a repair shop to agree to work on your vehicle, you have to get parts to effectuate the delete. Yeah. And those parts are not, they're becoming more and more uncommon, more and more. They're not gone yet, but for the most part, they will be. And that's the thing is that if you want to buy, say you want to buy a replacement, uh, I know you don't really need to replace an EGR delete, but say you have a manifold failure and uh you know you have to get a blocker plate or something like that not only are those parts becoming more rare and not only are they becoming harder to find they're also becoming much more expensive because they're being charged at a premium so it's getting to the point it's not maybe quite there yet but it's getting to the point where working on a defeated vehicle even if you can find a place to do it or you can do it yourself is just cost prohibitive. And it's also getting to the point where the technology for 
the emissions on tunes and the emissions equipment is efficient and effective enough that you don't even want to break the law, right? I mean, people are creating 100, 150, 200 horsepower tunes for emissions present vehicles, the EGRs, SCR, DPF, everything. So yeah, I mean, it's not a race truck and it's not like 1500 horsepower and it doesn't have nitrous or whatever, but you know, it's, it's really, that's really the movement of the, of the industry. So with regard, and you can see it, by the way, you can see that all of the big players who used to be in the defeat market are now in the emissions on tuning market, and they're all doing really good stuff, or most of them are. So your listeners question, you know, what can you do? Do the states have the authority to tell me you can't drive this vehicle? Yes. Do the federal does the federal government have the authority to come into a state and tell you you can't drive this vehicle? This vehicle is not legal to operate on the road. Yes, they do. Are they going to pursue the end user directly, frequently? No, they're not. But there's all these little speed bumps and road blocks and landmines and all kinds of other stuff that gets in the way of you having that delete on your vehicle that ultimately is just going to make it not worth it. And that's kind of where we're at now. One of the one of the biggest ways I've seen that, and this has come from listeners telling me, is they have a truck, maybe they didn't delete it, but they bought it that way, and now they want to go get a new one. And it's impossible to find a dealership to take it. Or the dealership tells them, you, you need to buy the DPF, the EGR, and they're looking at thousands of dollars to put all this back on, and they reach that kind of bottleneck yeah. as well with it. Seven so, or eight grand. Yeah, or more. You know, yeah. or, or, or might more. not even be in yeah. stock. <laughs> yeah. Um, oh, I, I mean, dealership is another major choke point. You can't buy a deleted vehicle. You can't sell a deleted vehicle. It's not legal to sell. I ran into that with my Duramax um, that I had that I you probably remember, Patrick, when I was yeah. working at ATS. It wasn't deleted, but it was a 2004, so it only had an EGR on it. And I had to take it in, get an emissions, make sure that the EGR was functional before I could sell it because otherwise I wasn't going to be able to do it. Yeah. So, you know, that stuff is definitely like the dealerships. I represent several and they have exposure because you get these small dealerships or these used car guys who are located in the Midwest or the South primarily. And what they are getting as far as trade-ins is deletes, deleted vehicles. And they take them because they people want them, right? Yeah. But that cycle can only happen so many times before eventually the EPA comes and they will enforce on a dealer for sure. And then the dealer's like, shit, that's not... Oh, I don't know if I could say that. You know, that's not legal. <laughs> um, I'm sure your listeners have heard worse. <laughs> so yeah, uh, install and repair facilities, dealerships, uh, huge choke point for the the resale and the, you know, continued use of deletes, even if you're in a state that doesn't have emissions. 
This is a lot of great information. I appreciate you chatting with me about uh, well, answering the listener questions and then also discussing the uh, enforcement initiatives because that's been, you know, I read through that memo and I kind of understood it, but I think it, it deserved, you know, a bulk of the podcast is to talk about how those work, how they can change, how they can stay the same. And I think yeah. this, you know, this summer before their fiscal year, it'll be really important for us to, to focus in on it and, uh, and learn more. But I appreciate your insights today, Stuart, chatting yeah. with me and answering these questions. Some I had and you know, some of the listeners had to help us navigate this. Uh, it's my pleasure. Um, I want to reiterate that, uh, you know, just because a, uh, some, just because there might not be an existing compliance initiative doesn't mean that the EPA isn't going to enforce on aftermarket defeats. I don't want your listeners to get the wrong idea. Just means that they're going to have less resources to do it. But yeah, I'm really glad that you had me on to talk about that specific document as well, because um, the, you know, the that when I saw that online, when I saw it on Facebook or Instagram or, you know, wherever, it was like a negative. It was like, oh, you know, look at this, EPA's at it again. Yeah. And I read the document and I was like, well, this is good. You know, it means that we might get a little reprieve from enforcement, at least the resources related to the enforcement. So that's good to know for your listeners. And um, I'm happy to come on a podcast anytime with you uh, to talk about your listener questions. Um, I'm always happy to educate. I feel like that's kind of my responsibility. I didn't mean to get into this diesel world when I came out of law school, but I happened to end up here. And I'm happy to educate the listeners with uh, any questions they may have or any questions you might have as well. Don't forget, diesel fans, make sure and head on over to Kershaw.kaiusa.com. Use code 20diesel for 20% off site-wide. It's a great way to save some money on some really cool gear if you need it for EDC or hunting, fishing, something at the job site or around the house. They've got a ton of different choices, regardless of what your budget is. So we appreciate our friends over there offering this discount code just for you guys. Also want to give a shout out to some of our Patreon supporters, Tyler Lowen of 23Diesel, John, Caleb, all of our other Patreons, all of you on Discord, on yeah, subscribe on YouTube, podcast apps. We appreciate your support here on year seven of the Diesel Podcast. We love to hear from you guys. Let us know if there's a particular guest or topic that you guys want to hear about. I'll make sure and get them on the podcast. Until next time, keep the shiny side up.